<laughs> I got the first post. Oh no. Hey. Hello, EE. -E. Good afternoon, everyone. Oh, someone is extremely clacky. Afternoon. Uh, afternoon. evening, good night. Oh, yes, good night. It's like, it's like 11. Yes, it's nearly midnight. Oh well. You're a bit quiet, uh, EE. -E. Ah, oh, yes, yes, yes. Hang on. I use, um, like a, uh, uh what's it called? Like a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Analog microphone. Um, and it has like a, this little amplifier -y, boxy thing. And to record videos, I need to have it set to one volume. Uh, and to, to talk on like Discord or Skype or something, I need to have it set to another volume. Um, so it's quite, quite annoying. I actually have like little painted markers on where it needs to be for either one of them just to get it just right. <laughs> Okay. Is there a compressor, or am I being stupid? No, I have absolutely no idea what it's called. It's just like this little black box that has two dials. I don't know what the second dial does, but I know the, the first dial alters my input volume. So, uh, as always, you know, everyone on here should have gone and watched and liked and commented on the latest video to, you know, oh, trick right. the YouTube algorithm into liking. Let me just comment fat soup and I'll have commented. No oh boy. Bat soup. I don't right. know where this bat suit meme like came from. Of all like the random stuff that there is out there, and there is some random stuff that is bat soup. My god. It's because it's because that's where the coronavirus came from. They had some bad, some bat soup, and then the bat virus jumped to humans. Oh, is it? Okay. We've well, allegedly, it. anyway. It's 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 either bat soup or it's a biomedical engineering lab where it escaped. Wow. Uh. Anyway. Uh. Yeah. I I don't know. If they officially know where it came from yet, do they? Officially. I mean, obviously, there's speculation, uh, and there's like uh, the genome. The Chinese sort. government. Yeah, no, the Chinese government, they, they claim that it came from an exotic seafood market, but the coronavirus is only, coronavirus, which is like a type of spherical virus, only only comes from mammals. So like, everybody's like, BS China. Right, um, yeah, well, it came from a seafood market, but they, yeah, but they don't sell just exclusively seafood. And, oh my God, look at this. I love their ingenuity, to be honest. I believe the first four cases were the near the seafood market and then that's the reason why they believe it came from there so it's not official in any way you know what's interesting with, with the mask shortage china uh, hong kong is that people don't know how to order online it's literally cheaper online like in hong kong for example you can get a box of 100 face mask for like 16 Australian dollars but you want to buy a box of that in a, in like, in a store in Hong Kong it's going to cost you like almost 300 um 60 Australian dollars yeah I, th I think there has been some cases where people have been like really really heavily fined for profiteering uh, off that I think internally within China uh, there was some some news article that some store or uh, pharmacy or something along those lines got charged like uh uh, like uh, 400,000 US dollars or something along those lines for, for pumping up the price of um, masks and stuff, which is like... That was in Taiwan, wasn't it? Or was that or something oh, else? I, I have absolutely no idea where it was, but um, but yeah, no, I think if it was if it was within China, I mean, it's classic, like, wow, that's probably, probably an overreaction, but I mean, it's probably a popular one, I guess. Wow, the Habo Hotel were blocking up China's closed. Wow. I saw that um, saw someone posted earlier on this Discord that someone had made a uh, crane game machine, but instead of like getting a stuffed animal, you get a face mask, and it's like a extreme version of profiteering because you know you're not price you're not price gauge, uh, gouging, you're just making it so they can't get it outright. My God. Gambling and shit. <laughs> oh dear. People are creative, aren't they? I mean, uh, obviously, terrible set of circumstances, but it is interesting to sort of see uh, the outcomes of some kind of weird 
uh, I don't know, somewhat uh, terrible kind of case study of, of what people do in sort of desperate situations. Yeah, I know. <laughs> when did VCJ become meme 2.0? If I can ask a question, was the Wuhan virus what inspired you to do this series? It seems like the series was already going, though. Uh, yeah, no, th this was completely, uh, the Wuhan virus and, and any kind of happenings were completely... I was assuming as much, but it, the dovetailing here is interesting. So I did a video last week, actually, it was the video just before this this, this one that was exclusively focused on, um, like, wasn't necessarily exclusively Wuhan virus, but um, sort of economic catastrophes, things like, you know, plagues, pandemics, earthquakes, tsunamis, things of that nature, all that kind of very unfun stuff. Um, and that was, of course, inspired by the Wuhan virus. But the, the China series, I mean, China is still the second most powerful economy in the world. It, it certainly yeah. deserves a three-part series, ir irrelevant of any current affairs. Yeah, I found that one that you did about the disasters to be emotionally moving. Oh, that's something that you don't normally hear for uh, an AE video. It's, uh, you know, I certainly have uh, people calling me uh, a Keynesian shill. I've had people calling me boring. I've had people calling me inspiring. Emotionally moving, I don't know. Like, uh, there you go. I can add that to my it repertoire. Man, I was supposed to be focusing there on the GDP figures. We're not, we're not here for emotions. We're here for results. <laughs> well, it's exactly because this isn't where you expected that it made it so real. Well, I mean, I, well, oh my goodness, great. Okay, okay, enough with the bat soup. Enough with it. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Good lord. I'll remove it, I'm sorry. Oh my god. Ah, oh dear. Anyway, okay, so, um, moving on from... Now, you guys had your, your opportunity to, to post memes about, um, the, the virus and everything in last week's video. Because last week's... Oh, actually, no, sorry. Thursday's video was about... Um, the Wuhan virus as well as natural disasters and things of that nature. But this one was about China, completely in isolation from any kind of current affairs that, that happened to be going on uh, within the nation. So does anyone have any questions about the particular video today as it pertains to Chinese modern economy minus any kind of viral epidemic? Uh, well, I've asked about how the pig viral Oh my god. <laughs> Oh dear. Uh, well, I have a question about the video. Okay, okay. So, the, the, the not picked person. What's your question about the video? Uh, well, do you think that there's a chance that, like, China, like, when, if, like, when Xi Jinping dies, and if China hasn't, like, become the number one economy in the world, do you think that the new leader might do something that will completely screw up, like, the growth? Or uh, something that happens? Yeah. Is there a chance? Okay, so that's a really good question. And of course, it's all hypothetical. Um, no one can predict the future. I don't have a crystal ball, and, and potentially your guess is as good as mine. Um, but what you sort of see is that, um, and I think we can all pretty much sort of, you know, kind of land on the fact that the China is a very authoritarian state, and, and Xi Jinping holds a very sort of heavy hand over the, the ruling of um, the nation, and he's obviously a very, very, very powerful figure. And that oftentimes creates power vacuums if there's no set um, leadership, uh, like, you know, chain of command or, or leadership sort of runoff protocol when, when a sort of head of state dies. It creates, you know, power vacuums uh, where, you know, multiple people will, will sort of vie for power and there'll be sort of, you know, disorder amongst a nation that has sort of put social order on top of everything as basically the number one priority of the nation. So yeah, uh, realistically, I think despite what any individual might do, just the lack of that sort of strongman authoritarian figure um, will be sort of hugely detrimental because they're not a, a democracy in the sense that they can kind of, you know, in, in America, obviously, if a president dies, and it's happened, you know, sitting US presidents have died, um, you know, there's, there's a chain of command. There's a vice president, he takes over, and he sort of real runs the country until the next general election, um, you know, where he or, or any other person can kind of run and, and he'll have an opponent and it's all sort of very set and orderly. There is contingencies. In China, it's not so much the case. It's kind of there's the supreme ruler and no one else really that can sort of touch his power because that's sort of inbuilt into a system that you don't want anyone kind of encroaching on your power uh, and you don't want anyone with a conflict of interest to, to kill you to become a head of state. 
So yeah, it's going to be hugely devastating regardless of who ended up taking power because the process of transferring from Xi Jinping to whoever his eventual successor is is going to be something that's probably very unsettling. Yeah. Well, yeah. thanks. I've so, been yeah, wondering yeah. that for a while. And again, you know, look, hey, maybe I'll be made to look like a complete fool. Maybe he'll die peacefully. His, you know, nominated uh, successor will take over. Uh, and it'll be sort of business as usual. Uh, I, I'm a little less optimistic, you know, see the death of Stalin or the death of any other sort of uh, dictator to sort of understand uh, the kind of turmoil that can result in, in powerful figures. Yeah. Oh boy. Oh, thanks. The memes. Uh, so I have a question over on the YouTube live stream. Um, Oh, never mind. It's just, would you like to talk me over email? Um, sure. I mean, my uh, email is in the video description. Uh, the big takeaway that I also want to make for people reaching out to me via email is that it is primarily like uh, business inquiries. Um, if, if you have a really genuinely sort of well thought out question, I'll, I'll do my best to, to reach out to them. But uh, oftentimes they sort of get buried in amongst everything and I kind of have to prioritize what it is that I go through. Normally your best place to, to reach out is um, on on the Discord server uh, or, or in the comment section itself. And oh my goodness gracious me, look at these. Uh, oh, the memes. I, can, I you, uh, <laughs> can I send you gifts? Uh, what is your address? Uh, I just need to send you some gifts. No dots saying, no dots saying make. Oh, yes, it's, what, it's not doxing, it's giving presents. I'm, this is communism, I'm sure. Can you also share your credit card information? <laughs> and there's three funky numbers on the back. On a different note, on a different note you could also always make box. like a... Oh, like a... You know, one of those... The op What's your home address? I want to write you a letter. Oh boy. No, 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 no. That's not happening. I want to you a carrier pigeon. Can we have EE bad unboxing? Gonna like, oh, yeah. gonna like <laughs> send you the the email address of like I don't know Kirribilli House. So if you send anything there, it becomes like an international federal crime, and Scott Morrison will hunt you down. Scomo, <laughs> uh, I have a big a question about China again. Is like about the changes power because you said before that there's no one to take over, but so far the change of power in China has been pretty smooth from president to president for what I've seen. Well, if you were to Are we discount talking the transition cases where they suddenly die or like... But this is the next person was quite a few leaders so far. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, there has been sort of quite a few leaders in, in China, obviously, throughout its, its um, transition. Um, oh boy. Uh, wait, hang on, who is Meek? Uh, it's me. What's up? Is the South African. The s Stop with the, the ponies, my good lord. Uh, these are, these are uh, efficient flying machines, you know? Uh-huh, okay. Uh, anyway, someone had a, <laughs> a question. Oh. oh yeah, sorry about the take about the takeover of um, <laughs> my God uh, over the takeover of uh, the sort of Chinese leaders and yeah, look, I mean they they have of course been sort of relatively painless transitions, uh, but none have sort of held quite the influence that Xi Jinping has since probably Mao and maybe even to to a lesser extent, you know Mao Mao um, it sort of held that kind of rule. Because Mao held it over a country that was very much suppressed, whereas, you know, Chinese citizens today are, you know, they're still sort of suppressed and, and there's sort of access to information that they don't have. And there's, there's certainly a lot of propaganda and uh, conditioning that goes into, you know, running the nation. But they are a lot more liberated than they were under the rule of, say, Mao. So there's obviously more of a potential for something to go wrong. Um, you know, sort of people are sort of slightly more liberated, which means they have sort of more uh, control over, you know, their, their say into the nation and I suppose by extension, the economy. All right. Hey, in, your, in your video, I think you talked about how the uh, Chinese Communist Party has just as much control over the economy now as it did uh, under uh, Mao. What did you mean by that? I thought that's what I was confusing. Yeah, so um, a lot of people sort of think that 
China kind of got to where it is today by kind of relaxing controls, you know, pulling off the um, the grip, I suppose, of, um, you know, how, how they're influencing the economy specifically. And that's, you know, kind of allowed free market capitalism into the system. And it, and it kind of boosted it just by, by effect there. Uh, and that's not that's not true, not, not really at all. Um, in China, you very much have your success determined by, uh, you know, the blessing basically of the Chinese Communist Party, people that are, you know, cozy and have that guanxi, those connections with, with powerful figures. You know, they get government contracts, their businesses get, you know, uh, you know, promoted by the government, they get sort of blessed, they, they're sort of allowed to skirt sort of rules and regulations that would otherwise hamper other uh, other companies and and certainly it's sort of a kickback system where you know these kinds of companies are then in turn supposed to you know feed information to the Chinese Communist Party or not disturb the peace in any way and and you know control people like you know dissidents sort of speaking out against the authoritarian state and that is sort of a, a give and take uh, and that means that yeah sure there are there are private industries you know there are billionaires um, there are companies that have been sort of started from the ground up and that kind of gives everyone the impression that oh you know it's a free market um, but it's not you know the companies that do well are the ones that have the blessing of the chinese communist party so while they're not state enterprises they are they have the blessing of the state and that sort of not having the blessing of the state is just as much a curse as being a non-state enterprise under a communist rule it, you're not going to exist for very long unfortunately but, 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 China, but China does allow a private enterprise into their country. However, there's a lot of red tape and a lot of uh, regulations for you to operate. Um, for example, uh, for example, you know, Google and Facebook trying to, you know, bypass uh, Ch Chinese red tape by, you know, trying to like, trying to make, trying to brand their um, their platform to be pro Chinese. But that, but in. Uh, but as as a as a result, they uh, they they're also forced to censor any uh, any any sort of dissent or the, the C CCP. So that's kind of the setback. So it's more saying that the uh, the companies that succeed in China are based on what the Chinese government favors, rather than saying like China. Uh, like I was thinking more of along the lines of China doesn't have a demand economy, uh, command economy anymore, where it's more like free market, where like the government isn't going to control exactly what's uh, created and uh, what is created in its economy, right? Uh, yes, but it still has a lot of influence over it. So um, in a sense, it sort of, it gives kind of, uh, from a, you know, let's say a dictatorist leader's point of view, kind of the best of both worlds. I still have the right of veto over any business that I don't like. I still have the right to sort of have that kind of heavy hand to sort of influence the way that people sort of conduct business. You know, let's say I'm starting a tech company. I'll know that if I say do something that's really pro-China or really good at data collection for the government, you know, my company's going to do all right. I'm going to get the blessing of the government and, you know, maybe even some kickbacks to kind of do what I do. Uh, and that's fantastic for, for a leader, while also still having, um, you know, the benefit of, you know, having people that are entrepreneurial, having people that are sort of looking to, to improve themselves, looking to work hard, create things of value uh, to actually expand and build wealth within an economy. So that's the sort of balance that they're striking at the moment, where they kind of get the best of both worlds. Uh, well, you know, from, from a government's point of view. Uh, and, and it's sort of not to say that um, it's less controlling, they have just as much control as they did 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, it's just that it sort of presents differently and it's a lot more liberating for individuals. So, uh, so, but uh, in China, you would say that China like does implement good uh, economics in the sense, it's just that it's, its motivations might not align directly with the citizens because it wants to exert that uh, control, right? Sorry, what was that? Just <laughs> uh, like China's government would be using good economic theory in, under this idea, but its ideals might not align directly with citizens in that the government wants to retain control. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. So I think um, I think the the big takeaway is that um, China's reform wasn't from the government sort of relaxing control and giving the power back to individuals or businesses. It came 
from them sort of implementing good economic theory that worked well for the nation. Things like opening themselves up to trade, opening themselves up to foreign direct investment, using their industrial capacity to, to, to facilitate a huge export market, all of those created a lot of wealth for the, com uh, for the country. It wasn't necessarily that they liberalized any of those things, it's just that they embraced those things. Uh, and certainly, uh, it's certainly a trade-off where uh, for a lot of nations, especially, you know, sort of democratic nations, the primary concern of the government is sort of prosperity for the individual citizens, uh, because by effect, you know, and despite sort of certain influences and despite what a lot of people say about politicians, they kind of know if they do well for the economy, uh, and I'm sorry, Von Crum, you're very tappy-tappy, um, they do well for their citizens, um, they will you know, be re-elected and, you know, people will sort of recognize for them for that. Now, in China, they don't have to worry necessarily about being re-elected. They're guaranteed re-election. There's, there's really only one party in China and, you know, that party sort of nominates the supreme leader in the same sort of fashion. Um, so that's not really so much of a concern. What is a concern to them is holding on to that power. So if you were the leader of China, you know, the supreme leader of China, you would certainly value... Um, social control, you know, keeping the peace over, uh, you know, that little bit extra of economic, that little bit extra economic prosperity. Uh, and that is, you know, normally sort of social peace, social order, it goes hand in hand with economic prosperity, um, but certainly relinquishing a little bit of individual control, releasing a little bit of um, liberties to, to individual constituents can go a long way to, to increasing that, uh, but that's not a step that they're kind of willing to take at the moment. They'd still rather have that kind of control uh, as opposed to giving it all back and, you know, they're kind of just going to walk the tightrope of liberties, but also, you know, we, we kind of control you still. Uh, I have a question. Uh, I, I have a communist friend that says that China's a capitalist state. Is that true? Uh, well, I mean... It, it, it really depends in the certain sense that on a local and sort of a, a microeconomic level, yeah, oh, hell yeah, it's, it's an incredibly um, capitalistic, you know, cutthroat sort of market, you know, you sort of see it. Uh, for, for example, you know, their wealth inequality, their income inequality is higher than, say, the United States. Uh, and, and it's almost sort of approaching things like some of the most unequal nations on earth. Uh, and that tends to be sort of something where you kind of rule out it being a communist nation because the idea of, you know, communist nations or socialist nations or workers' paradises is that, you know, all men are equal and resources are distributed equitably and, you know, we're working for a common good. So, you know, sort of wealth, massive wealth inequality shouldn't really exist. But China has massive wealth and income inequality. So by that sort of metric, yes, uh, it's sort of very much a capitalistic cutthroat kind of nation. But uh, there are sort of instances, especially on larger levels, when you're looking at sort of large industries and things of that nature, where, where it's not. And, and that sort of pertains to things like, uh, you know, running of those companies that we were talking about, you know, in, in America, you wanted to start a, you know, a company that, uh, you know, had encrypted data transfer, or all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, you would kind of be allowed to do that. And, you know, if you brought wealth to, to citizens, and you created value there, you'd be rewarded for it. Uh, in China, of course, they would kind of shut that shit down pretty quickly. Uh, so they still have that kind of control. So it's a capitalist nation on a sort of an individual sense, but it's still with a heavy-handed control uh, of the government. Uh, I, I don't know, something, let's dub it, you know, centrally planned capitalism. But how does then... But then again, in uh, capitalist countries like US, the uh, companies can open up like fracking stations where they frack mineral oil out of uh, that has huge economic uh, like um, environmental impact and that that goes unnoticed unrestricted uh, and it's it's um, allowed it's, uh, in the name it's for the sake of a free open market but that's actually better that's actually detrimental for the environment but in that sense I'd, I'd say that uh, a certain amount of restrictions uh, is actually a pretty good thing yeah and, and that's what governments are for uh, for restricting economic activity yeah and um that's a really really good point and that probably as with everything sort of the devil's in the details and and, and sort of on a basic macro level you might say well, okay well you know china has a little bit more control over its industries that's not always a bad thing and you use the example of fracking which is a hugely uh devastating 
you know, sort of environmental issue for, practice. for yeah, yeah, practice. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, and it's something that, you know, for the most part, a lot of citizens agree should just be kind of cut out altogether. Uh, but China doesn't really care about things like uh, negative externalities for citizens. They care about industries that sort of threaten the balance of power. So it's not like they're, uh, you know, clamping down on businesses and, and, and sort of wielding their power when it comes to things like environmental issues. China's environmental controls are absolute dog shit. I mean, you know... Wait, you, I'm pretty sure China's been uh, improving their... Uh their regulations on uh, environmental stuff because they're seeing a lot of the negative impacts now. Shouldn't China care more about their negative externalities because they don't have to worry about things like getting reelected? They only need to worry about like how the overall citizens are doing. Well, and with like air pollution being a major issue in like Chinese cities, I feel like that's a bigger issue that they would focus on. Yeah, and I think um, the, the point that I really want you guys to take away from this is that, yeah, citizens' welfare is great. You know, if they can make a richer society, fantastic. Uh, but that does not con come at uh, the expense of their control over the nation. So if they can make people richer, fantastic. If they can make people healthier, fantastic. But if it means that, you know, they have to shut down a, a plant or, or something like that that gives them some kind of influence over a local population, they're not going to do it. Um, and, you know, certainly when it comes to environmental controls, you know, certainly they sort of see it as something that's giving them a bit of a bad reputation internationally, you know, so they'll, they'll, they'll get on top of it. Um, but it's not really sort of their primary concern for the general welfare of their constituents. It's more something where they're concerned uh, about their sort of image, their, their face, I suppose. Um, and, you know, I think um, we kind of bring it up and they've actually come, become quite famous with the whole outbreak. Uh, two YouTubers uh, that sort of lived and worked in China, Serpent ZA and, um, my God, I've forgotten, ADV China. And they have, there's a third channel, but it's the same two guys. Uh, really, really fantastic. And they had this really good um, kind of a video where they were sort of talking about how the Chinese Communist Party does business. Oh, there you go. Yeah, Laowai 84. Um, yeah, so they were talking about how the Communist Party does business and they sort of said they either do absolutely nothing, you know, they might make a law and then never enforce it, you know, sort of pollution control or something like that. If that kind of gets out of hand and they lose a bit of face over it, they'll completely overreact. You know, they'll shut entire factories down, they'll demolish things, they'll fine people a million dollars, uh, you know, they'll put people to death. Um, so there's, there's sort of no in-between. It's, it's all sort of no action at all or complete overreaction. Uh, which is also an important takeaway. But yeah, as I sort of said, the, the real big important thing there is that yes, they have control over business. It's not something that is um, because they want to be sort of virtuous. It's not something because they care about, you know, the general well-being of negative externalities, uh, you know, participants in, in an economy. It's not because they care about things like the environment or because they care about their constituents' health. Uh, it's because they care about the potential for big, powerful corporations uh, to limit the control that they have over the nation uh, and that's why they sort of flex uh, that kind of control still to this day in what is otherwise uh, a very very loose capitalist nation for something like pollution wouldn't it make more sense to like understand it from a per capita perspective where like western countries are significantly worse than china is uh yeah i mean of course there's, there's always those sort of arguments i think um, the kind of takeaway is that China's still a major industrial sort of sector. And if you're comparing it to something like, um, you know, say the United States, it sort of stands to reason that, you know, the United States is a primarily services-based economy now and in a much sort of higher proportion than China is. Um, so you'd think, you know, per capita, uh, they wouldn't be. But of course, you know, the average uh, American citizen is a lot wealthier than the average Chinese citizen. And by extension, their, um, you know, carbon footprint is, is sort of a lot wider um, do I think it's fair, the sort of negative flack they get? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it's still a sort of a hugely polluting country and, and putting that kind of pressure on them potentially gets rid of one of the largest sort of uh, greenhouse gas perpetrators in the world. Um, but it's also something where, you know, potentially it's unfair for them because they do rely heavily on being sort of the workshop of the royal that, you know, um, you know, a hundred years ago, America was sort of destroying its, its uh, environment to, to build its factories and industries and for it to go through its own industrial revolution. 
Um, so what's the, what kind of right do Americans have to sort of turn around and say to China, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, well, now you can't do the same thing, uh, even if it means that you sort of give up a little bit of that, um, even if that means you sort of give up a little bit of that potential for, for wealth generation. Would exactly. it be fair for, like, first world countries to tell, like, third world countries, especially, like, more developing countries in, like, Africa, for example, to lower their uh, carbon footprint or other types of pollution? So the the um, argument that I actually quite liked, and it'd be interesting to hear what your thoughts are on this, um, is that it kind of sort of came up when uh, the bushfires in um, the Amazon were a big thing, before they were completely overshadowed by the, the bushfires in Australia at the moment. But um, you know, so so the bushfires in the Amazon were sort of an issue, kind of late last year. Um, that you know, apparently the whole Amazon was on fire, and people were kind of losing their goddamn minds, and and you know, Brazil was kind of really thrown under the bus for a certain sense it's like you know you've got to be more on top of logging you've got to be more on top of you know looking after these sort of ecosystems and this is yada 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 this is all your fault um and then a really good argument was okay you know at the moment um brazil is, is home to one of the largest natural rainforests in the world with the amazon and, and you know obviously it's a really really important thing that the world kind of must protect um but what kind of right do we have to actually enforce that on them? At the end of the day, those trees are in their sovereign territory. They're their assets of the nation. And, you know, obviously that kind of land brings a lot of wealth. And it also hinders a lot of wealth. You know, they can't farm on that land unless they clear it. Um, they can't mine on that land unless they clear it. And, you know, they can't get money from the lumber unless they cut down some trees. Now, of course, the environmental issues from that are devastating. But if you look at the United States sort of uh, 300 years ago, uh, its, its forestry was a hundred times denser than it was today, but America turned around and cut down all its trees to make room for farmland and mines and also lumber and all of that sort of thing. It got its utility already. Now it's turning around and kind of pointing the finger at countries like Brazil and saying, well, yeah, you know, don't cut down those trees like we used to to get really rich uh, because, you know, that's going gonna, gonna to fuck the, the world. Uh, and they are correct. The environmental issues of them cutting down the trees will be devastating, in the same sense, it's exactly what America did, you know, 300 years ago to get to where it is today. So it's a little bit hypocritical, uh, even though it's still very, very good advice. Uh, can you know, compare countries from a hundred years? I'm sorry. Uh, really nice listening to you. I like your accent a lot. And uh, just one question before I go. Uh, what did you study on uh, university? And is, in, is there a lot of math in uh, macroeconomics? Um, so the the answer is no. Um, realistically, if, if you're a good macroeconomist, you should avoid maths at absolutely all costs. Uh, but I did the exact opposite. So, <laughs> so my uh, undergraduate degree was just a, the generic and economics degree, um, and I did sort of uh, you know economics and accounting as a sort of a sub major. I then went into a, a master's of business analytics. Um, so that was sort of mixing econometrics. Uh, so the, the kind of understanding the general theory of economics, that sort of big picture stuff with the actual sort of data science behind, okay, we think, you know, uh, raising costs, you know, reduces demand uh, for a certain good and that will give us a new equilibrium point. Let's actually sort of study the data and see if that really happens in, in real world populations. So it was about sort of data collection, you know, data safety and actual sort of data use. That was a lot of mass. Um, and then I got into a, a PhD program where my, my sort of thesis was on uh, the interchangeability or, or the sort of transitionability of, of labor and capital. So, you know, sort of how much labor equals how much, uh, you know, capital and what was the sort of marginal propensity to change those two out. If I need 100 workers using hammers to build a car in two hours, what would two workers with a steel press be able to, to make? Would they sort of, do they kind of equal the same kind of potential output? You know, how many workers equals how much machinery? That sort of was uh, mathematically looking at how that worked. Now, I dropped out of that program um, because it was very hard and I got offered <laughs> I got offered a job that was very, very tempting. Um, so I sort of took it. Um, and you know that's sort of the industry that I work in now. It, it, it's primarily sort of finance. Um, it's finance based and it's kind of very much operational and I kind of unfortunately don't use too too much of the sort of theory, but still a lot of the mathematics, I suppose behind it. 
Um, and that was kind of uh, part of the inspiration for making this channel in the sense that I really, really enjoyed teaching people. Um, that was sort of a big part of my university days, you know, uh, running classes for, for undergraduates and things like that. And, you know, obviously that's something that I'm deprived on in my day-to-day -day work. So, uh, you know, that's why I enjoy making these little videos for, for everyone to watch and argue with me about on YouTube. You're really good at uh, teaching, I just gotta tell you. And uh, thank you for this lesson. See you. Cheers, mate. No worries. Have a good one. Um, can I get back to the previous conversation? So, you arguing that America 300, 100 years ago used up all its resources and destroyed the environment, but can you really compare what they did back then? But since right now we have the knowledge, the technology to make more less uh, more clean to have more clean sources of energy and like what china is doing opening so many coal plants to cover its energy needs uh, you really well those cleaner energy sources of energy are more expensive and like if and like a lot of the uh new renewable energies have their own problems for example solar panels having difficulties being recycled after they're being done new or like nuclear with its nuclear waste products and also what's more expensive is not having the energy in the first place all the people out here got adequate energy and think about the negative externalities that come from not having electricity not having any lights to do homework, not have basic electricity in your house. Yeah, but the fundamental of the, the fundamental of the question, of, I think the difference between. Oh, that's really annowing. Yeah. There you go. Someone got him. Um, so I think the the basic question is, of course, you know, now we have a lot more of an understanding beside, you know, behind what kind of externalities things like coal-fired power plants and mass logging operations mean for an environment. Uh, and it's certainly something that, you know, it's a very pressing issue, the issue of global warming, climate change, things of that nature. Um, you know, you know, we, we have knowledge of that now. So maybe that's the difference between America 300 years ago and let's say China today. Um, and, and yeah, I think that's certainly fair enough. Um, you know, obviously, it, it is something where um, we could say, well, okay, you know, America kind of got away with it because they didn't know any better uh, in the same way that, you know, people back in, you know, Middle Ages got away with a whole lot of uh, nasty things like using leeches to, to cure the common cold and, I don't know, bloodletting because we didn't know any better. Um, but today we, we do and that's why we have modern medicine and, and vaccines and things like that. Uh, that is, I don't know, I think that's sort of something that's beyond my authority to say what's right and what's wrong. Um, certainly, I would not want to ever to sort of deny a nation an opportunity to kind of grow and, and achieve the same level of wealth that, um, you know, let's say a nation like the United States has done because, you know, in a, in a sense, that means sort of uh, overall sort of a more positive thing for the world. Um, but unfortunately, what we've got to realize is that the average American um, lives well and truly beyond their, their allocation of resources equitably divided on this planet. So if everyone sort of achieved the same living standards as an American, we're gonna need a lot more planets or we're gonna, we're gonna cook this one really quickly. So, you know, effectively something's gonna give uh, and it's up to us sort of as a, yeah, it's up to us as sort of humans to decide what that's gonna be, you know, hey, what it could mean is, is of course, you know, we all get much more efficient. We drive electric cars. We, we you know, live in sort of self-sustaining homes. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe we cut down on, on meat consumption or we look at alternatives. Uh, and that sort of cuts the average American sort of carbon footprint and, and ecological impact down to a level where, you know, everyone in the world can kind of get to that level and, and you know, still be sort of relatively equitable. Maybe it means... That's very, that's very optimistic, though. It's extremely optimistic. Maybe that means that, uh, you know, hey, some people are just destined to, you know, be poor and there's nothing that we can do about that and we can't even afford for them to get rich because it's going to mean that we're going to screw up our, our world and, and no one's going to be better off. Uh, or, you know, even sort of distant hypotheticals is we look at, you know, obviously expanding our civilization into to space and, and things like that. Um, you know, colonize and, and screw up another planet, you know, why not keep, keep the ball rolling? Um, or keep the streak. Yeah. Keep the streak, you know, kill streak, uh, you know, planets nil humans one, um, or of course, you know, things like population control, um, which is something that's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, a lot of people are sort of speculating that, you know, as countries become wealthier, their birth rates become lower. Um, and, uh, you know, 
not not forced population control. I hear a lot of people going, oh, uh, but you know, yeah. So you no, but you sort of you, you know you sort of see like uh, countries like Japan. You know, they re reached a certain level of wealth. Um, they kind of became very, very prosperous very, very quickly, and then sort of birth rates declined, and now they have an aging and sort of shrinking population. Uh, if that sort of happens, and that kind of course, you know, set, is set for, for most nations, what we might see is that, hey, maybe, you know, the world kind of caps out at, let's say, 12 billion people, uh, which is still almost double what we have at the moment. But, you know, we, with technology, we may be able to support that with no real issues. I don't know. Again, maybe wishful thinking maybe we're all doomed um who knows that's it's pure speculation i suppose i mean uh use anti-natalism instead of population control and, uh, uh ee uh i got a question what are your thoughts on malthusian economics Ah, it's a really good question. Like and subscribe to hear the answer to that i'm actually doing a video series on all of the schools of economic thought um hey. At the moment, like, I want to kind of keep it for the video for two reasons. One, I, I don't feel I've done enough research to sort of have my feelings uh, hold any kind of weight that, that's worthwhile sharing. Uh, and, and two, also because, you know, you got to give me them them uh, views to, to hear my thoughts. Uh, uh, economics? Yeah. Uh, I, uh, it would be kind of uh, off the point, but uh, I want to ask, uh, actually, uh, what do you think about the current economic situation in Turkey. I have absolutely no thoughts about the current economic situation in Turkey. I am completely oblivious to it, to be honest. <laughs> there, there's no economic situation in Turkey. They're resurrecting an empire, bro. It's cool. <laughs> I bet might maybe it might make me sound completely uh, oblivious, but I uh, honestly have not. Um, I've, I've got no idea. I mean, um, if the memes were to be to, to believed, I've already done um, the economy of Turkey when I looked at Iran because oops. Um, but uh, yes, that that will be a video, and and uh, until then again, I don't really sort of have anything to sort of add that would be of value. Um, oh, okay. So someone had a really, really good question. Uh, why are birth rates in countries with a high human development index or HDI lower? Really, 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 really good question. What we tend to find is that countries with high human development indexes uh, tend to have higher costs of living. So um, you're sort of seeing, you know, countries like think uh, Australia, Canada, the UK, um, the United States have a higher cost of living than let's say and costs of living standards and costs of living than let's say china uh india um you know african nations things of that nature um so with that uh sure living standards are better but oftentimes we sort of see a much higher prevalence of uh women in the workforce uh, and now that can either be sort of through um sort of economic pressure you know the need for, for two income households or uh, just sort of societal cultural liberation, giving them the opportunity to do so. Uh, and as soon as you have sort of women in the workforce, obviously the, the uh, propensity for them to ha have you know children is lower. Uh, you know you have to consider you know the impact of having children on on careers. I have to consider you know sort of taking out you know uh, parental leave and things like that. And that can obviously be restrictions. And the overall sort of uh, the aggregate trend of that is that people have less children. Uh, there's also sort of the the kind of case where you know, children are freaking expensive um, in in you know developed countries. There's sort of a, a an understanding that you're going to you know provide healthcare and you know, you know food and schooling and education and things like that, which is um, much more of an additional cost, even relatively uh, in a developed country than it is in sort of a developing country. Um, where you know there's probably not that kind of aggressive uh, uptick in, in sort of cost of living by having a second you know second or third or fourth child. And the other thing, of course, and, it, and it's quite sad, is that oftentimes people will, uh, you know, especially in in underdeveloped countries, you know, say so think of places like sub-Saharan Africa, um, people will have lots and lots of children because oftentimes infant mortality is much higher. Whereas if you have a child in let's say Australia, Canada, the United States, England, you know, developed countries. Are you relatively confident that it's going to survive? Um, you know, you have sort of a uh, lot of... I True. I would say like another point, which is that in uh, uh, lower income countries, uh, kids are more of a need rather than a want. It's, it's a weird thing to say, but it's actually kind of true. Because uh, in Africa, in South Africa, where I'm from, more kids equals more 
farmers in a weird sense like they work on the farm the kids work on the farm which allows for better production which increases i guess the amount of money they have whereas in developed nations you don't necessarily you benefit from not having kids more than you benefit from having kids yeah and that's a that's a fantastic point as well uh and something that's actually sort of been widely kind of recognized as you know your kids kind of become your employees um then yeah yeah so something that i sort of very much forgot to mention obviously a big piece of the puzzle and it's a lot of those sort of things working together um that means that you know birth rates very much decline in line with um you know a lot of sort of factors uh that, that sort of come along with with higher human development indexes what, what about the chinese one child policy that they had well of course that is a yeah, very yeah, one child policy is a very interesting topic in itself yeah. That's not so much as uh, the sort of guiding hand of the free market as like a sledgehammer of you do this and we kind of beat <laughs> beat it into shape. There's no sort of uh, and, and, there's no and, subtle and, economic and, uh, processes there. Yeah. It's just hardcore <laughs> legislation. And you would think uh, that China learned its lesson from the one, the, the one child policy. Now they've uh, reinstated a two child policy, like they've never learned their lesson. No, but yeah, it's not, working, uh, so. it's not even reaching two. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, years of stigma of having only one child, then the country says, okay, now have two. But then the it's most, like, it's oh. mostly the women that are revolting, as in they kind of just the the state sees them as just a womb machine, like a baby maker, and a lot of women are becoming more liberal and they want to travel and do a lot of fun things. Yeah, just it's not just the country. they want it's to be the they want to be alone, they want to be single not single they, they want to enjoy their life they, they don't want to invest a lot of time in having a, kid. a family yeah. yeah yeah very similar to what you sort of saw in japan you know obviously it went it came from a society that was very 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 much sort of based in uh very strict gender roles and you know women had children and stayed at home and you know men went out and worked you know 40 hours uh you know or probably 80 hours a week uh, and that's just sort of how the world worked and now you sort of see it the same in japan you know women are a lot more liberated they want to have careers as well uh, and with that that normally comes at the expense of you know starting a family or at least it comes at the expense of starting a family as young as they used to so what would you uh, what's your opinion on the aging population and how that would affect its economy so this is something that's really really interesting to me uh particularly because of my sort of field of study back in the day. Now, aging populations are normally seen as a really bad thing. Uh, you know, oftentimes economies are very, very dependent on a strong workforce to produce wealth. And, you know, that sort of more or less uh, gets distributed, doesn't necessarily get distributed evenly, but it gets distributed amongst the nation. Now, if you have a huge, heavy sort of, um, I guess, like a, a ball and chain of an elderly population kind of you know, that can't produce anything of value anymore and, and potentially even worse, you know, rely on, on care workers to kind of keep them alive and healthy, um, that normally is sort of seen as something that really limits your economic potential as a nation. So an aging population is, is very bad. You want a nice young population. Um, now, China is going to run into that problem. Japan is very much sort of amongst that problem. Um, but I think something that might sort of be overlooked is that the, the nature of capital these days um, is something that's going to have a lot of lot of sort of positive impacts and maybe mitigate this kind of problem, maybe not altogether, but certainly mitigate the effects of this population as it would have stood, you know, let's say 60 years ago. A lot of industries, a lot of wealth generating industries these days are not very sort of labor intensive. You know, a hundred years ago, if you wanted to create wealth in a society, you built lots of factories and you were an industrial superpower. Uh, these days, if you want to build wealth in a society, you either have a strong tech industry or a finance industry or a little bit of both, you know, services, things Innovation, like that. Yeah. That's right. People that require, you know, sitting, sitting behind a laptop. Uh, trademark. Yes, sitting behind laptops and typing up things and, you know, sort of moving bits and pieces around the world. Now, if you have a strong service economy, it's two things. One, there's nothing to say that there's a hard age limit for that. Um, you, you're not necessarily using your muscles and, and all that. And, you know, certainly people eventually get too old and they, you know, get senile and things like that. But it certainly extends the useful working age of a, of a human. 
Uh, it extends their shelf life, I suppose, as a kind of heartless way of saying it. Uh, but it also sort of overflows into other things, you know, where you have an, a population uh, that's increasingly utilizing automation in industries that are sort of very capital intensive. You know, use the example that I sort of gave of people making cars. A hundred years ago, to build a Ford Model T, you needed probably about, you know, 200 workers that would, you know, sort of drill things in by hand. And, you know, they had machineries, but it was somewhat limited. You know, these days, obviously, the majority of what goes into making cars is, is workers making sure that machines are operating efficiently. They're kind of just there to, to work out bugs. You could probably make something like a, like a Tesla um, with, you know, five or six very, very skilled individuals um, throughout the entire process. And, and the rest is kind of handled by big, powerful machines, uh, which means that the actual need for a young population isn't as severe as it once was. Uh, and, you know, maybe, hey, in a hypothetical reality, that'll even extend into things like aged care. You know, you'll have aged care nurse robots and things of that nature, uh, all of which will sort of act to uh, alleviate the sort of stresses that an aging population would have put on an economy. Again, not get rid of it altogether, but alleviate sort of the, 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 the stresses. Uh, maybe that's just me being overly optimistic, but that uh, I sort of tend to be. Uh, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it. Would you say that Japan's aging population came too quickly? Potentially. Yeah, they had an aging population ahead of their time. Yeah. And they, they were already the second, world's second largest economy for quite a while. I think they've got enough. So, so countries like China might get lucky as technology progresses. Yeah, they, they very well might. Um, and that will sort of, I think there's a, China, uh, Japan specifically has a few other issues like, you know, their lack of migration and, and sort of very insular um, politics is probably sort of uh, over exacerbating the issue that they're having with an aging population. Um, and, and of course, you know, obviously they're probably a little bit too early. And, and the other big takeaway is it's not like they're doing badly. Sure, their economy hasn't grown, but it's still a very, very wealthy place with very, very high standards of living. It's not like they've re recessed into, you know, gone back into their slums or anything like that. Would you say that, would, would you, uh, would, would you say that um, the, the retirement limits imposed on, you know, seniors are, are bad for the economy? Uh, which retirement limits, sorry? Um, my... I think like, 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 yeah. So... Like an age limit to work, you know? Oh, uh, in what sort of country? Because there are no hard limits on, on uh, you know, working... Let's just say in France. France is a very famous example. Right, so what's, what's the age limit to work in France? Uh, over here in Malaysia, it's uh, it's sixty. You you can only work until you're sixty. That's really long. See if a country has a welfare state for senior citizens that gives uh, out a lot of pension. Right, and I have, a lot of I, I have a kind of an interesting take on this. Uh, I would like to ask, uh, dealing with this exact topic, which is. In America, they're having a $68 trillion uh, wealth transfer known as the Great Wealth Transformer, as Trans Wealth Transformer, Trans, whatever, dude. Money's exchange, right? So uh, apparently, like all the boomers that got very rich from just screwing everyone over are now dying. So over the next 20 years or so, these people are now going to transfer all of their wealth to a younger generation that is much more consumer. Uh, they have a, a, a very big uh, consumer culture. So do you think that the world transfer will actually boost global GDP? Because these people are going to spend a ton more. Maybe, but I, I, I would actually sort of like, again, sort of it's all anecdotal, but um, I would challenge that sort of mentality that, oh, well, you know, these younger generations are more consumerist. I think it's, it's all down to marginal propensity to consume. And I think for a long, lot of it, they haven't actually sort of had uh, the capability to sort of be a, a nation or, or sort of individuals that have a, a strong marginal propensity to save. Um, so I don't think that younger generations are inherently more consumerist than, than older generations. Now, any kind of transfer of money, any kind of windfall, normally people get pretty dumb and they go, oh, fantastic, I've just got half a million dollars from, you know, Uncle Jeremy. Um, you know, I'm rich. You know, I'll go out and buy a house and probably a new car and a boat and a jet ski. Um, and, you know, that, that's bound to happen. And that, of course, will sort of boost the economy. But I don't think that 
um, as an aggregate. It would just transfer. It would just transfer the wealth to other peoples who are trying to, you know, uh, poach on on consumers' nature of millennials. I guess. Because yeah, not just the United States, it's everyone globally. After World War II, there's just been a massive influx of kids in general mm. in all parts yeah. of the world. And I, and I think um, I think another thing to kind of consider there is it's not like it's going to 20-somethings. You know, baby boomers uh, at the moment are sort of getting into their 60s, 70s, you know, so a lot of them are you know, probably going to start dying soon. It's, it's a sort of a harsh reality. You know, we still have sort of an 82-year-old kind of life expectancy uh, so, you know, let's say maybe in sort of 10, 15 years, they sort of start dying off en masse. Uh, their kids are going to be 50, 60. It's not like it's going to 20-year-olds. Uh, so it's not like it's sort of this massive leap. You know, maybe a little bit would go to grandparents and things like that. Uh, but it's not like it's going to young people that are like, oh, man, I'm going to go spend this all on avocado toast and, um, you know, what are those or sort of fancy beers? Or, or, or like cocaine cocktails concoctions yeah so um yeah i mean it's it's certainly going to uh increase spending and no one is uh no one's immune to the effect of having sort of like that urge to go out and spend a windfall uh, but it's uh yeah it'll be like i mean i don't want to sort of underplay it but um maybe that's sort of an, a misunderstanding um of sort of what the study would try to represent and the fact that it, it's probably going to go to people that are still very old mm. Yeah, people, people be old, yo. I mean, the reason why people are talking about it is because it's the largest wealth transfer in human history. It's never happened before because we've always had like monarchies and we've always had like uh, rigid social structures. And now it's post-war. There's no war going on, no large-scale war going on. People are at least and not quite happy. At least for the, the free developed world. Food. At least for the free developed world, you know, like. The rest of the you know continents are probably still suffering in you know civil war and uh, and poverty. I'd say I'd say the biggest beneficiaries are the developing countries because China, like in order to buy, if people want to buy stuff, they'll buy things, and most of it comes from China anyway. So the biggest beneficiaries are going to be the manufacturing countries, so like Vietnam. We live in a time where uh, GDP is a fraction of the total wealth in a society so the people who have wealth yeah. have more power over society and they've had the chance to invest buy real estate and develop their assets mm -hmm. and as they age it uh, basically increases in value and they've basically got a foothold that essentially that the newer generations have a harder time getting into because of that uh, uh, I guess I have, I have another question, which is like um, life expectancy, right? Do you think that having a high life expectancy is a bad thing for a nation? Mm, well, I, I mean, I, I would sort of be at a loss to say yes, wouldn't I? I mean, um, I, I think it's, it's, it's probably a good thing that people sort of live longer and it's sort of a, a sign of positive living standards and quality of life improvements. Um, so I, I don't. Yeah, I think it's probably a good thing. And now economically, you know, you sort of have to consider that, you know, these people sort of in retirement, especially if they're able to save up capital um, to, to fund their own retirement, they're not a drain on society. If anything, they're kind of effectively allocating resources um, that they've sort of built up throughout their life to, to fund themselves to the point where they're no longer able to work. Um, so I, I would have to say, sure, God, no. Uh, even though there might be some economic argument that sort of said, oh, I don't know, we should send people into the blender when they're 70. Uh, what type of effect do you think immortality would have on an economy? Ooh, that is really good. And fair warning, um, one of my videos in the future, sort of one of probably the Thursday videos that are on sort of not like a national economy. The national economy videos tend to be much much more popular than sort of the niche uh, video topics like the economy of disasters or um, like the, the economy of like entropy universe or video games and things like that. Um, but one of them that I really, really wanted to explore uh, was the economy of sort of the TV series Altered Carbon. 
uh, which is for those of you who haven't watched this, like a Netflix. Yeah, Alter Car- Carbon's good show. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a it's a Netflix sort of um, TV show. There's only one season of it. I really enjoyed it. It's kind of like science fiction. Alternatively, fiction-y. you could, you could also watch um, something called Weird City. It's a it's a YouTube original series. Uh, check it out. It's also it's free. It's free to watch. Ah, well, there you go. Uh, Anyway, my point is um, a sort of like one of the core kind of uh, plot points of the video of the sort of the TV series is that there are these sort of um, upper class of individuals that um, don't die. Uh, you know, technology's got to such a point where they can kind of live indefinitely by cloning themselves and transferring their consciousness into new, new clones. And, and what that means is that you have, you know, individuals that have sort of lorded over institutions for hundreds of hundreds of years. And, you know, there's sort of no reality where they can kind of be killed unless they sort of really want to kill themselves. Uh, and so one of the takeaways from that is um, it, it sort of really strongly broadens investment horizons you know at the moment now individuals are sort of desperate to seek strong market returns because you know at the end of the day they know that they still are going to die um you know so even like if i could use myself as sort of a colloquial example um you know i save and invest a certain amount of money and you know i put it into sort of investments that are a little bit riskier um you know things like the s p 500 you know, it's a little bit riskier than sticking it all in a savings account uh, because I know I kind of want to hit those sort of 7 to 8% annual returns because eventually I sort of want to get to a point where I'm able to sort of self-fund my retirement. Um, but now if I knew that I was going to live for 10,000 years, well, I wouldn't care. I'd go for the safest goddamn investments that I could find. Even if I only beat inflation by half a percent, it doesn't matter. Over 10,000 years, uh, that growth is huge. So I think the economic impacts of immortality. Let's say, hypothetically, it was only available to sort of the elite. Huge wealth inequality because these people can save and invest and save and invest and compound interest can grow over, let's say, hundreds if not thousands of years. Even doubling the average life expectancy would exacerbate wealth inequality massively. Uh, and again, you know, it also sort of gives them time to uh, acquire sort of more education, acquire more skills. And, you know, hey, if someone then turned around and said, you can live to 2000, but you have to spend 40 years at medical school becoming um, a super immortal neurosurgeon, well, to an average person, who's going to spend 40 years at school? Would anyone do that here in this chat? No. Yeah, exactly. Because, um, oh, okay, Xi Jinping would, yes, he says yes. All right, well, okay, I think he was trying to make fun of me. Anyway, um, yeah, the reason that you wouldn't is because by the time you actually kind of got into your profession, you'd be 60 and you'd kind of be close to death. Uh, it's kind of a harsh reality. And that's another third of argument for, for people that don't go into medicine at the moment, you know? To go into medicine, you get four years of undergraduate degrees and you know, probably three years of, of uh, post-grad and then probably three years of residency before you can sort of even start practicing at the most basic level. You know, realistically, some people like neurosurgeons, uh, you know, they spend 15 years at school before they can sort of become, you know, fully fledged neurosurgeons. Uh, and that sort of cuts out a significant portion of their life. If I would it, say like, why does that kind of matter? Like if you could live forever, like. Going to school for 40 years kind of just seems like nothing. Like, I remember doing fucking, I mean, sorry, not sorry, sorry. I remember doing karate for, like, when I was six years old, like, around nine. I don't really remember any of it. I guess that's how it would feel like if you were to go to school for 40 years and then live for, like, 360. It just wouldn't really matter that much. Exactly. Exactly. But at the moment, there's no one that's going to go to school for 40 years, even if they earn $10 million a year, or maybe if they earn $10 million a year, even if they earn like $2 million a year once they got out of school, people aren't going to do it because the quality of life is going to suck for 40 years. And then they're only going to have, you know, sort of 20 years left to, to actually properly enjoy it um, before they become old and senile. Now, if you lived indefinitely, 40 years at school means absolutely nothing. Um, so these, there would be sort of a class of people that have had time to educate themselves to a level far beyond the average populace uh, and also accumulate wealth, uh, just a sort of a staggering weight over a staggering period of time um, that would mean sort of immortality would be sort of hugely sort of influential for things like wealth inequality. Really interesting subject. I, I freaking love it. This also goes into the argument of uh, would you rather win the lottery or live twice as long win the lottery any day oh okay so 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 when you say sort of live twice as long will i have a good quality of life 
Okay, so I can... Decline in age. I mean, only decline in health for the last 10 years. Right, so... So I'd probably live like I'm a sort of somewhat healthy, you know, male in a first world country. Uh, I probably have a sort of a life expectancy of about 80 to 90 years old at the moment. Um, so let's say hypothetically, if I was to do that, I would live to, uh, let's say 180, but only after I got to, let's say 160, would I sort of start to decline and become sort of senile. There, are, there also have to be 140 if you've doubled the time that you're unhealthy. Sure. Okay. We're going to, yeah, we're going to double. Okay. So I, I can live to 140 uh, as a sort of perfectly sort of functioning. And I know I kind of will get to sort of middle age, let's say around uh, 90 and sort of, you know, gradual decline until, you know, I have sort of the four, last 40 years. Now, uh, of course, the sort of thing would be, well, if I won the lottery, you know, I can start enjoying life right now from the get-go no problem at all uh it's easy and, and look you know at the moment sort of um you know someone that, that's approaching 30 you know i probably have a solid 30 40 years to do that in relatively good health now let's say hypothetically i take the option b and i, and I decide to live for a very very long time you know at the moment i'm 30 so what i could do uh is spend the next 70 years um, you know, sort of working and accumulating wealth, or let's say, sort of say the next 60 years working and accumulating wealth uh, to a point where I could get to a point, you know, people normally have a 40 year working career and they can build up enough to sort of save and retire on. Uh, if someone was really sort of motivated, they could have a 60 year working career and build up a lot more of a nest egg, you know, through the power of compound interest. And that would give me uh, effectively, you know, another, uh, I'd sort of be 90 years old, then I would have another 50 years uh, to sort of live plus you know a little bit more sort of senile time so it kind of is an argument of whether you'd want to work for it uh and sort of enjoy it a little bit more or not have to work for it and just sort of yolo out i don't know what are your thoughts on that i would definitely take the, the um, living longer part i think that inflation might be an issue like generally if you have an extra 50 years of inflation what would that do well, normally uh, investments outpace inflation. So if you have a well diversified stock portfolio uh, or, you know, a real estate portfolio or a portfolio of any kind of investments, it, it normally outpaces inflation. Yeah, it would what be happens if, if it didn't outpace inflation? It's an absolute support. Yeah. Is there, I mean, I mean there, there, there's a point where inflation will be so high that it would, the, the, you know, the, would, it, would, it would cause a, a bust and, you know, it's going to go downhill from there. Mm. This question also goes into uh, what our view is of the future. Yeah, do you actually want to live in it? Yeah, whether, climate, whether there might be a climate apocalypse. Yeah. Overall, I, 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 I'm optimistic, to be honest. Um, I would sort of say, uh, you know, I think we're going to sort of see some really cool stuff in our lifetimes and, and human ingenuity can't be underestimated. You know, certainly there are things like, you know, the climate crisis that we should be uh, aware of and we should be working towards, but I don't think it's going to make the future a worse place to live in than what we're sort of living in at the moment. I think, you know, 100 years from now, we're going to have things like, you know, space travel that's relatively commonplace. Um, you know, we're going to have sort of technologies and things of that nature that's going to make quality of life um, significantly better than what it is now, just in the same way that quality of life now is better than it was uh, by a significant margin 100 years ago. Uh, so it's certainly interesting times, and I would, I would definitely take option B. Oh, yeah, I'm extremely optimistic. I mean, just like, look at Israel, their water desalination. They have cities and deserts. This climate crisis will have an effect on GDP, but uh, with the resources available, to develop nations, uh, the damage can be mitigated. The only issue is mostly uh, increasing the level of resources that we have at our disposal. Is basically the main issue that I think that we have. Yeah, absolutely. All that aside, though, I need to go to bed. 
It's 1am here and I'm about to start a new work week because uh, I unfortunately am not going to live to be 180. So uh, I've got to work really hard so I can retire really early. Thanks for all coming on board. Continue the conversation without me. You guys do a good job of that anyway. Um, thanks for the guys over on the live stream and on the Discord server. So uh, peace out, guys. I'll see you in the next video. No worries. Thanks for making me a mod. Thank you. Good night. Bye. Wait a second. What?